I first got up close and intimate with my guest today in the confines of a very small changing room in a boutique in Kensington Market. Now you may be thinking, that's way too much information, Stephen. But don't worry, he wasn't even there. Now, you know, I feel gratitude to all my guests after we've met and had these countercultural conversations. But in this case, I felt grateful before our conversation. All will become clear in this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Welcome. Or welcome back. Step inside the dusty bureau and take a seat. For here, amongst the tottering piles of books and records and film canisters, are tales of the underground, oral histories and rare testimonies. Now, if you sign up for our bulletins at bureauofrosculture.com, I'll write you the odd letter and you can hear many more of these tales. Thanks to those who've already joined us, supported us, reviewed us, recommended us or egged us on in any way. That makes all the difference. Keep it coming. If you're listening to this in spring 2023, you might like to know that we will be live at the beautiful Hayon Y Literary Festival on June the 1st with three events and some very, very special guests. You can check out details of that too at bureaubrosculture.com. We're hoping to venture further afield and further abroad this year and next. Now, speaking of abroad, several recent programmes have featured the American West, but today we're back in Blighty, in the English West, or to be more precise, in the English Northwest, back in the musical metropolis of Manchester, to hear about the life and times of a guest who grew up and blew up there in Moss Side. He was a member of some of the most influential post-punk bands. Magazine, The Birthday Party, and then The Bad Seeds. He's collaborated with a whole range of artists, including Diamanda Gallas, David Lynch, Nick Cave, Jarvis Cocker, Atticus Ross, Depeche Mode, and many more. He's written film scores, made films himself, made many solo records, and he recently published an extraordinary memoir of his youth. We're going to talk about some of that today, and also about Bones, about being an outsider, about Manchester in the 70s, about punk, about luck, troubles, and heroin addiction, and about the alchemical process of turning darkness into artness, and signposts and signal moments along the way to destiny. Here he is, the jazz devil, Barry Adamson. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Barry. Hi, Stephen. Nice to be here. Last time I saw you was in the British Library. That's right, yeah. And you very graciously came to help us make an x-ray record. Oh, it was um, great fun to do that. I think it was three years ago. I was going to say, when we, uh, I thought it was three years just before things went south. Pre-COVID PCs on yeah, Key Corny. PC. Put out two albums in a book since then. You've mm, been busy, right? A bit of time to kill, yeah. You know, uh, Barry, that evening, obviously, the, we did that event about bone music and these records made on x-rays. Mm. And, uh, and I was actually thinking when I was reading 
the book, memoir, I realised that actually bones and skeletal stuff mm. is quite a significant part of your story, isn't it? I tried to explain a little bit of that on the night, but I thought that it is the place, but at the same time, it wasn't the time to go into it. But I could see definitely how, as a point of reference in my own life, things had suddenly come in an incredible full circle. I think I was offering you x-rays of bone replacements as opposed to bone. <laughs> but why was that such a significant part of your early life in particular? Right? Well, I suffer from a, a rare disease called Ollier's, uh, also known as dyschondroplasia, where it affects the long bones, that is the arms and legs. So the shoulders and the hips are quite vulnerable. And it, it, it kind of means that... Um, you don't get really the, the the same bone growth. So therefore, I was born with my hips not connected sockets to the joints, and likewise in my arms. So I've kind of had a life of being very aware of that. I mean, I, I started to have operations from the age of three, big one when I was seven or eight, um, to to put my hips back in, and and then as a you know, and then I tried to just not really think about it you know and go ahead with all the things you do at school you know as as in join the rugby team and play football <laughs> and all those things you know and right. then I, I can remember at, at school the careers officer saying well you know from what's going on with you you, you might want to look at taking a, a job sat down every day in an office you know and I thought well I'm not really geared to that because already I was kind of like I had one eye on the arts you know at school as a sort of as a sort of escape, you know. Um, but then, of course, I got into more serious trouble uh, as I got older. And the, the only cure, as it were, for Ollier's is to have bones replaced. So that's that started to happen uh, in my 30s. Just before we started, you mentioned this thing about, we're talking about, you know, left of centre, left field, mm. and being the outsider's outsider. That was one of the things, wasn't it, that right from an early age must have made you feel a bit like an outsider because all the other kids are zooming around doing stuff and you're, yeah. you're the one in the body cast. Yeah, I, I kind of called myself the observer. Mm. I remember and sort of lying around uh, outside the front door in an oversized pram, which was you know, I could, the only way I could be moved around. And, uh, and I did very much then start to sort of see things I was kind of through a lens in a way, you know, and, and sort of gather information that way and, and get a sort of different kind of sense value, I think, um, on what would sort of construct my particular way of seeing things as a kind of child outsider. And I know we're not talking about race, but that played a part as well as being the observer, being mixed race. So I had an one eye you know, on the, the white race and another eye on the black race and, and kind of hung around in the middle, like looking at, a, at this black and white world, as it were. Which, you know, I can kind of join the dots now, now I'm older, and see kind of where I've come from. I do want to talk about race, actually, because th that was my second point about in terms of being an outsider. You just sort of said it, really, I guess, because by virtue of being mixed race, mm. and this is in the... Well, mm. you're born in the late 50s, late 50s right? Yeah. So early 60s and 70s, mm. um, a sort of... I get the impression it was a kind of tense time in this country and in certain parts of this country, wasn't it? It's very difficult to not yeah. be white. And I think as well there was an almost... Uh, and I've experienced this recently in a situation I don't need to go into, but where 
you're kind of not seen. So so there's a kind of in, invisibility policy adopted. So, you know, rather than like look at you and take in all the information, I look past you. You know, I don't, I don't sort of look at you at all. And I can remember this very strange feeling of uh, almost being discounted and, and, and not seen, which does affect a person, of, of course. You know, I see it now. I'm just one of those glass half full kind of people a lot of the time. So I go like, well, how can I use that? to get myself around, you know, <laughs> like a spy, you know. Yeah, the invisible man. Exactly. That's the sort of passive aspect of it, though. But were you aware or, you know, with, and with your folks, you know, your dad was black, your mum was white, mm. were you aware of it having a more active, aggressive aspect in terms of, you know, being on the, on the receiving end? Of- I think my skeletal makeup made it, I ain't going to win in any, any sort of battle. So I better find another way, you know. At school, that came out interestingly in interesting ways, you know. If anyone wants to get into a fight, I could, I could just throw in a few impersonations. <laughs> this guy's really funny. The mixed race might be Arwood, I was, you know, like. For the listener to sort of set the scene, so Barry's born in the late fifties in Mossside in Manchester, which is quite a tough, tough part of Manchester, isn't it? And well, it wasn't until the eighties when it really got a, a bad reputation. I think at that time it was a, it was a place where. There was a kind of a slight affinity between there was a lot of Irish people there, so there was kind of affinity between black and white people, and you know you could there was a sort of as I like to say an open door policy, so right. you could kind of go to your mate's house, just walk in, sit at the table, and get a fed. That started to close down, I think, in the eighties. You know, violence, you know, drugs and violence were on the rise, and uh, a lot of like the people I knew at school were suddenly dealing it became very much then a closed door <laughs> we're going to talk more about manchester um johnny marr came in to talk about it actually he's from a very irish background and i yeah. was fascinated because he was talking about you know his parents were irish immigrants and you know they came over with a whole bunch of their family actually right. so he was talked about this kind of open door policy that he kind of lived in this village almost in a way where right. you're just wandering in out of people's houses <laughs> yeah. and um, but tell us about your folks i mean what was their story well, my dad uh, ran away from home with his brother and ended up in a sort of RAF uh, recruitment base and just jumped on a plane and came here. Said he was uh, 19 and he was only 17. <laughs> don't know how he did it because he must have had papers of some kind. I don't, I don't really know. So him and his brother came over. Um, so they were in the RAF. My mum was sort of on the outskirts of Manchester. You know, they met at a dance and then, you know, after the war, my dad then stayed in Manchester, didn't go back, um, much to his uh, uh, his own family's uh, chagrin. But um, and I don't really think he had much contact with them again. Right. Which I always found really, really strange. Did you, so did you have any contact with his, no, his family? Right. No, it was okay. a no-go area. Right. It was a no-go area for a couple of reasons, actually. I mean, one of them was that... Um, you know, he didn't want to sort of open any history there. But my mum was quite sort of dominant in the fact that should he start opening that history, he may want to go back, leaving ah, right, her. Okay, right. So right, right. I think he he purposely kind of shut it off. And there was a reason for shutting it off. They they made financial demands on him a lot. Okay. And at some point he just sort of went, I can't do this anymore. And so they kind of cut him off in a way. And I was just thinking in terms of being an outsider, because it's another way of being cut off, isn't it? If you cut yeah. off from one sort of side of your 
your ancestral line. And the, the, I've only been to Jamaica once, and I felt very uncomfortable <laughs> most of the time. Whereas my kids were going, this is fantastic. <laughs> oh, <laughs> running around, jumping in every bit of water they could find, you know, and, and I'm just sat there going with a sort of strange, like, expression of, like, what the hell's happening? You know? <laughs> so, and that was the lack of connection, I think it was. You, you know, you tell these, paint these pictures of your childhood in Manchester um, in the book, you know, the memoir, Up Above the City, Down Beneath the Stars, and you do it through this sort of newsreel style, which makes sense in terms of you feeling like the observer reporting in a way on your own life. Is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I know you said before that, you know, you had to do a bit of like archival digging as well, sort of, you know, research to establish mm. the facts and stuff. But how did that feel, sort of going back through those through those early times and, you know, bringing it all to life again? I think you commit yourself, as it were. And I decided very early on to commit myself to, you know, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, <laughs> you know, which was quite unnerving. And um, But you get sort of... You get kind of help along the way. It's really strange, like, because well, you think, oh, I'm not going to remember, all, you know. So I kind of started like, like I would do with any art project, you know, like, you know, basically kind of sit down and make a list of things that I want from it, you know. Start putting in like years and dates and my age against the date and what could I remember there. So little snippets, little snippets. You know, once you've kind of got this manifesto type framework. The thing starts to open up, you know, and I can remember about two months in, I was like, "What am I doing? This is it, this is madness. Why am I doing this? Madness as in it's pushing you towards yeah, madness in just, some way, just or, going yeah. in, just going in and pulling this stuff up, you know." And then I got this call from an old friend of mine, he used to be a sound engineer around the time of the Bad Seeds. She was like one of the first female sound live sound engineers at the time. I said to her, what are you up to? She says, I'm writing a memoir. She says, I've been writing it for a long time. But I told her I was at this two-month stage that seemed pretty crucial of, like, do or die kind of thing. And she went, so I imagine that you're lying behind the sofa in a fetal position. And I went, exactly. She went, well, okay, that's done now. You can get up and start writing again. And I was like, that's it. And I did it. And it was like that. It was a very strange threshold that I had to cross. Which that she recognised that stage. From her own, yeah, her from own, her own right. insights. Memoir is an interesting word, isn't it? Isn't it? it com- compared with autobiography, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's it's much more kind of resonant for a start, isn't it? But yeah. obviously because it's, and it's much more of memory. Yeah. And also I was going for like more just this, like, like a spy thriller, mm-hmm. sort of like a David Peace novel or something like that, or novel-esque at least. You're setting out yeah. to investigate. Yeah. So I'm the character, yeah. but like that film uh, Angel Heart was a yeah. good guide. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember going to see that with about 10 people mm. and really blowing it about halfway mm. through and I'm just going, oh, it's him. Everyone went, what? So yeah. uh, <laughs> so I kind of got that as a story, you know, and then subsequent mm. things I've worked on that all seem to have elements of that, like particularly like with David Lynch and, you know, these kind of projects that, that investigate this internal external state the artist in sort of flow when you said that because there are some you know shocking Mm. let's put it that way sort of revelations in the in the book um was it that like you were remembering things re-examining things and sort of having realizations about them which were like oh i've investigated them and i know them on a deep level i almost became a screenwriter then and thought, okay, this is what's going to happen to the character. How do I set it up mm. using the facts? 
because like I couldn't ignore certain things like events and circumstances and dates and that had this incredible strong ironical sense of the darkness of the of the things I knew that I had to sort of reveal mm. and I thought if I do it that way maybe like people will understand the language if you like and I was hoping to at least not in a well maybe in a in a manipulative way in the sense that the way a film director manipulates you to go and sit in the dark with total strangers um, you know th there'd be some sort of empathy and then sort of go around it that way it needed to not ignore the brutality mm. or, and above all I was desperate to try and not put it across as a victim you know um, so I don't know if I achieved that but you know um. it doesn't come across as a victim and I think <laughs> I think we should operate in those spoilers policy as to read some of those things which are shocking in context as well it makes more sense yeah actually, yeah, and, it's, yeah. And listen by the way listeners it's a great read it's not a misery <laughs> memoir yeah exactly yeah it's true that i was aware of that a misery memoir i've got to stay away from that <laughs> just i extracted this phrase um and it was this applies i thought this might apply to in touch to the whole hmm. of the book or or in a way maybe the whole of uh your life because it is the evolution of luck and trouble all the way through oh you talk about luck a yep. lot being in the right place the right time, the right, time, right, time yeah. right yeah and then also trouble mm. these troubles that, that right. happen to you evolution of luck and trouble i think you've got you've nailed something there because that's that seemed to go hand in hand you know it's not just mm. like fortuitous and like wow look at that He's, you know i'm 18 and i've joined a band that's going to be like you know, <laughs> heralded as one of the great post-punk bands ever. and then another one oh and then on the way out, i might play with iggy pop oh you know and then at the same time i'm being you know i'm sort of running into brick walls and sort of sliding down <laughs> them for everyone to see uh, johnny ma talked about a similar thing but in a different way because mm -hmm. he he talked a bit about this thing which he said was um signposts along the road yeah you know about when he's about six or seven maybe going out with his folks and past a shop window and he looked up and he saw a guitar bang something happened you know what i mean that was moment. it yeah that was the moment and uh and he, he talked about his meeting angie's wife and being outside the manchester apollo mick fleetwood gets out of a limo right he's around the back because right. he used to sneak in with his mates through okay. the fire door yeah i know exactly uh, where <laughs> fleetwood mac were playing and, and this limo you know and mick fleetwood gets out when he's got a, like i think he's got a it might have been Chris. Christie might have been Stephen Nicks. So he's got a woman on either either arm anyway, right? <laughs> exactly, and he's drinking yeah. a glass of red wine <laughs> at the same time. And, and he, Johnny was like, "Ding, that's what, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want it. <laughs> Whatever it is, he's got. I want it. You know." But I was going to ask you really about that because whether whether it's luck or fate, these things that happen along the way, mm. and these moments of uh, choices as well, because you're present, presented with sure. with something. I think you go to. You go to see um, uh, Goldfinger with your folks that's when you're it. six or seven years old. Yeah. Tell us about that. That was the same moment for, as Johnny Marr seeing the guitar and me hearing, you know, John Barry's score and almost suddenly going like, what the hell is that? Yeah, and the whole experience really of the oversized picture um, and the colour and also just the way emotions were being expressed through this other medium. Mm. Like I could tell something was going to happen because the music informed me and then something might, something else might sort of be going along and I'm going like, oh wow. Obviously that's me articulating it now. And at the time I just, but I just knew that this is something 
I want to do. And then I'd go home and there'd be like Danger Man on the TV. And I'd go like, and I'd go like, I wonder what the music's doing. And I'd listen to Edwin Astley's score and, and just think, oh my God, this is, unbe-. and then see his name on something else and then try and like hear, you know. And then, but then at the same time, pop music was coming through the radio in a very strong way because everything seemed quite individual. So, you know, if, if it be the Beatles, if it be the Rolling Stones, if it be Elvis Presley, you know, so all those things had these different qualities to them, but there was still music. So I kind of made this strange filmic link hmm. between pop music and film and, but more this, this, this sense of uh, the signposting, as, mm. as Johnny Marr said, that's, that's a signpost, that's something that's affecting me in this way that I cannot deny. I know it's easy, easy perhaps to see them in retrospect, isn't mm. it, these, these uh, of course. Uh, along the way. I mean, James Hillman's, the uh, now sadly dead uh, psychotherapist, got this thing about calling, he describes it, and it's almost like your future is calling you in some way. Mm, interesting. Um, and it gives you these kind of clues, and you can sort of take them, take them or not. I mean, I think, it, certainly for me, you know, sometimes I'm unaware of that, and then mm-hmm. and I've not taken them, I've chickened out in some way. You know? Oh, duff, God. <laughs> Regret, you know. Felt left with a regret. Can you, can that's you just it. Can you pass me a phone? I've just got a few calls to make. You know? <laughs> I know, yeah. but and then yeah. but something else then perhaps supersedes yeah. that and goes yeah. like, well, if that had happened, would that have happened? Maybe there's a few kind of things laid out, like choice. You know, as you say, choice, and you have to kind of find the one for you. I'll go back to sort of luck again, and maybe it's not luck. Maybe it was all predetermined, pre destined this is what you have to do and i don't even quite think i'm there yet right you know it might ha- it might start to really happen for me when i'm about 70 i don't know why do you have going, a feeling of that yeah, I do. Do. yeah 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 that's where you know the thing will open and that's it and all this other stuff is like building blocks along the way and then the exasperation of them kind of not really hitting the the bigger sweet spot and then going again okay well, let's go again let's go again let's go again yeah. all right let's go back to to manchester then so often in this program we talk about the counterculture and in inverted mm. commas um as opposed to counterculture which has always been there mm. um so this is the 60s and 70s in britain sure. um it's not the hit ashbury it's not carnaby no, street no. but what was it what was Man- manchester like at that time well it was very much a, a black and white world as far as i was concerned you know it was still kind of reeling you know, from the war, late 50s, it was still kind of putting itself together. And pop music seemed to provide at least a glimpse into something for me, like a velvet suit, really? With a ruffled shirt? What? <laughs> what? Okay. No, my dad <laughs> going off to sort of his job at Glover's Cables to sort of make these huge spools that shipwire could go, you know. Hmm. Velvet suit and a, right. and a ruffled shirt and hair that kept kind of came down the front of your eyes and on all the rest of it you know it was unheard of so i think i talk about in the book about hearing music from down the street at the local uh strip joint the poco a poco and just hearing this drum beat you know you know lying awake <laughs> at night <laughs> sort of hearing you know hearing like like a russ mayer <laughs> kind of atmosphere going i'm thinking what is going on why does that <laughs> sound so great you know were you surrounded by music? I mean, was it like in your family home? And Well, I had a sister who was nine years older than me, so she was kind of like the jukebox informant, you know. Um, so anything that came in would be you know, listened to by her, and I would kind of get seconds on it, you know. So I'd hear all the Beatles 
particularly the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, which she was a fan club member. So you get all these weird records. Ah, it's John. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she had the fan club records. She had the, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. She okay, had the whole yeah. thing. I wish yeah. I still had them. Yeah, and the radio was on all the time. My dad was kind of obsessed with the radio. Like in any room he went in, or the car, you know, he would like turn the dial and find something, which I'm very grateful for actually, because it was a sort of a leveler, you know, and it's and it kind of seemed to bring us together, you know, without the sort of tensions, right, right, you know, that everyone was trying to deal with, you know, my own physical, emotional tensions, and my mum and my dad's kind of standing in society, you know, and this kind of. Th- Johnny talked about the fact, I mean, obviously it's Irish background, so that, you know, it's got that traditional thing about, you know, music's a big part of it anyway. Um, But he was sort of saying that, you know, also for his folks that um, there was a little big club scene in Manchester, not like, you know, there's all these different kind of Irish clubs and Mm. there was Jamaican clubs and there was Mm. the ethnic clubs. Yeah, exactly. That There's kind of quite a wide range, quite a wide palette of Mm. sounds and stuff Mm. that he was hearing. Well, I I wasn't hearing so much of the the Jamaican clubs I, just, I kind of got I kind of picked up something like with my my dad had these two friends from the RAF and they would come over you know and hang out and then so, and so I was very intrigued by this whole thing so and and my other thing was going to the barber shop mm. with them you know which is still of course a huge tradition now because um, it was a, of its own thing, and I couldn't understand a word that anybody said, and I found it absolutely fascinating to, to sit there and try and undo the dialect things. So that that was good. But I, I knew th- that this was going on through photographs. Right. I would see photographs of these club scenes, like with my mum and my dad, with other with other Jamaicans, and you know, well, if I want other Jamaicans and other white women. Right. So it was almost like this really hmm. kind of another sub scene, you know, of of them being finding a safe place to hang out. That must have been very strange then in nineteen sixty two, three. All the tensions I'm sure there too, but hmm. it did seem quite a very cosmopolitan yeah. and quite open place actually. I think, they, that, I think that's why they probably chose to stay there. You know? Right. And then all the music that came out of that subsequently. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you grew up during that decade, what about books and other, you know, like clothes and record stores and bookshops? Mm-hmm. Later when I got walking again, mm, okay. I, I felt I could like at least get into, you know, the latest fashions, which I also thought was a, a way of like to be recognised by an, by your social group or whatever. Um, so... Definitely, and and I at youth clubs, where music was played on a Friday night, and you learnt kind of move, certain moves, and then of course puberty hits, and you dancing, mating, <laughs> thing, you know, and and falling clumsily, and all these sort of things. So I didn't really feel that I needed to look elsewhere than what was happening. And also, you got you know pop music at that time. Like every record was different and could have come from a different culture, or there wasn't a particular sound. In the 1670s, uh, the Hollies and the Bee Gees and PJ Proby had, you know, moved into town for a while, and Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah, and you and you're sort of going like, yeah, we've got it. 
Yeah, Manchester's got it. Right? We've got it, yeah. This was a place where things did happen in the music scene, particularly. As has proved to be the case. Yeah. Time and time Still. again, like time and time again, you know. Yeah. Johnny turned with this funny thing about him being in his bedroom listening to kind of prog and stuff and his sister banging on the door and saying, what's that boring shit you're listening to? <laughs> listen to some of this and then making him listen to like chart stuff or mm. disco and mm. stuff like that, mm. crashing in. Mm. And was that like that for you? So you were, there was the early 70s, all that... So there's that sort of really serious prog thing going on, wasn't there? And then well, I was, I, some very cool art school stuff at the same time. Art school stuff at the same time, yeah. But before that, there was Motown as well. Motown. My right, sister yeah. was right. very much into Motown. So, it, so that put a whole new spin on right. things, you know, like how music is made in a whole other way, you know, as well as the sort of esoteric uh, moments from Slade or... Which are incredible records. You talk yeah. about Alice Cooper's band, the original exactly. one, that record. So I was, you know, I, was, I felt like I was armed with these different idioms, if you like. To go back to Johnny Mars thing, what was defining moment for me was going with a friend to see Wishbone Ash and leaving because we just thought <laughs> this was boring. This is boring. I'm mean, yeah. sorry, Wishbone. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's some great stuff in there. And then walking down the street past the Midland Hotel and this limo pulling in. And Roxy Music pile out, dressed as Roxy Music, you know. And same thing, it was like, that, you know. I want that. Yeah, make me a deal and make it straight, you know. <laughs> All signed and sealed, I'll take it. That was almost like something in the mainstream that was really quite outside of everything. Because the glam was kind of pushing the doors open, I suppose, on, you know, outsider things already. You know, what Bowie and Roxy Music were doing and people who were copying or aping that i've had this feeling that there are some artists that are countercultural, right and it's nothing to do with whether they're successful or not mm. i mean i was thinking is it steven just because you think they're cool that's mm. why you know are you just substituting countercultural for cool you're countercultural i think radiohead seem to me countercultural even they're massively successful mm. i'm not a massive fan by the no, way I know what you mean there's something about it yep 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 i suppose roxy and Early Roxy and Bowie seemed countercultural, exactly, including the proper pop's appearances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's where I, I'm getting a, a, a grasp of like the way forward, you know, the way to go, you know. And I'm and I'm still like, I still will listen to to Bowie and Roxy music as a kind of guide as to sort of how how do I express it or, or what what would they do? Or of course, you know, every David Bowie record inside out, you can see them on. Um, top of the pops and you can see the audience like nervous like looking at them going why has he got his arm around it and like what what's, what's going on what's going on this is incredible you know and it is it would seem to be belong a bit belong to some back alley you know subterranean club somewhere and there it is on everyone's tv and i looked for things like that all the time like you know joy division on the six after the six o'clock news tony wilson bless him Put them on TV after the six o'clock news. My mum, my mum and dad, you could, you could hear the knives and forks drop right. on the tray on their knees. You know, while while I'm just going like, this is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Transmission. You know, I just thought this is Tony Wilson. You have to take your heart off to that guy, right? <sighs> totally. So, I'm sure lots of people know who Tony Wilson was, but I mean, he was a Granada Reports TV anchor, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, right. in his day job sort of thing. I mean, yeah. he was doing all the other stuff in the background. And yeah. He was pushing bands like Joy Division. Mm. So all that stuff's going on, you know, and at the same time, you know, and then things progress a bit. Then seeing every band that comes through town and then, and then you know, choosing who's on tonight, oh, William Burroughs. <clears throat> oh, okay. So you go along and listen to William Burroughs reading and, you're, and it all starts to, 
makes sense. You know, this this idea of like something outside of the mainstream that's been going on for centuries. You right, know, right. And there's something appealing there. There's something about that that says to me, no matter who you are, you don't have it in here. You can express yourself in a whole other way, which is. And then of course, punk comes along for me. Right time, right age, seventeen, eighteen. That comes along and seals the deal of, of like you know, putting two fingers up to the establishment and all the rest of it. Just before we step onto that, you mentioned Burroughs then, and uh, you've said that I think when you're in the bad seats, that all of you were always, you know, you always had a book under your arm. Yeah. Of you, you know. <laughs> Maybe something else on the other hand, That's but you true. had a book in one hand. Yeah. <laughs> Did books become important for you then as a teenager? Yeah, I think the idea was to sort of digest as much countercultural information, I suppose, and, and knowledge as you could, you know, everything from Nietzsche to Raymond Chandler, you know, everything, mm, mm. anything. I gravitated J.G. Ballard and, and Hubert Selby Jr. was a favourite. I kind of missed those days. I keep telling myself, you know, I'll buy a book and I'll get like, <sighs> do you know what I mean? I get a quarter of the way in <laughs> and then that's it. And I'm like mm. going, what are you doing? You've got that. You've got all these books to finish. Whereas then I should just go devour them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm sure yeah. you're the same, you know. Yeah. Partly for me, I think it's that I've, for a while, I sort of ruined myself by grazing for information on the internet so much that I lost the habit of mm. reading, continuity of concentration to kind of keep going beyond the first yeah. chapter. I've been school, trying to school myself over the last couple of years back into it. Okay. I've been reading fiction again for the yeah, first yeah, time yeah. in years. And, I think uh, I'm going to make a firm commitment to, to pick up those books again. Yeah, I've been reading Borghese, you know, like because they're short stories. So it's actually a bit, uh, I thought maybe to start there yeah i mean i have read a couple of things and they have been of a short story nature as well but to get into the novel is, would be ideal yeah, yeah absolutely yeah so uh, so books have become important for you and along with all this musicals and we're heading towards punk and i suppose in terms of counterculture and manchester and punk not only do you join magazine and it is your life and you know you're part of the life of that band and you say right place right time it seems to me looking at it from a distance is that punk was in the right place at the right time, wasn't it? Because yeah. it sort of landed, it pricked the pomposity of some of that mm. Wishbone Ash sort of world yeah, which yeah. was going on before. You've got an industrial, post-industrial town like Manchester, you know, which is quite tough times mm. in the 70s, as mm. the rest of the country was, wasn't it? You know mm. what I mean? Something needed to change somehow. Mm. You've got all that youthful energy. And it all comes together. But the other thing which is for you is that you've got all this bass guitar. It's only got two strings on it, right? Mm. So and you, and you can barely play, but mm. you've got the... You've got the nows? Na- yeah, nows. So I've answered the ad by Helen yeah, Devoto exactly. for a bass player. And that's punk in itself, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's right? exactly what I was going to say. That's the permission of punk. Mm. I don't think in another day and age I could have done that. Right. But the fact that you've gone to a, a, a bar and seen the people who are playing sat next to you right. at the bar right. and then walk up on the stage and pick up like dilapidated what would seem to be dilapidated instruments and just play them incredibly and then just like make this noise you felt like you know like the distance wasn't the same as it was I explained in the book about going to see Led Zeppelin possibly a week before and miles away on the stage these Greek gods appear sort yeah. of thing but, right. but so so inaccessible Whereas like punk was sort of like yeah go on, have a go you know, it's a fancy it's written on you know a bit of paper you know like all this stuff it's, it made it sort of possible that things could be put into your hands and you could do something with them. So I was very inspired by that you know to go and get the other two strings and and 
and see what's what's what. With Although you, I got the impression that you probably would have been able to do it with two strings for a while at least, right? I mean, probably, was, but, I, but getting the other two strings is what got me the job because right. I, I saw the advert right. when I went right. to buy the other two strings. Right, right. Okay, and right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, then yeah. I got home, yeah. put the two strings on and said, you know, I'm going to respond to this advert from Howard DeVoe who, who had this, it was in this group, Buzzcocks, who were amazing. I'd, you know, I'd seen them play and just thought they were incredible. You bought their record from Paul Morley? I bought Morley. their record from Paul Morley, yeah, the long-haired Paul Morley. Um, <laughs> very, not so punk. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I thought, give it a go. And, it, and it, you know, I stayed up all night and, and learned, you know, just play, like, some basic rhythm and ba-bom-bom-bom, you know, that kind of thing. And then when I went the next day, it turns out that, just the very thing, the, the very basics that I'd learned were all that were necessary. So it, it kind of weaved a little spell within what was going on, I think. And I was off with the job. This is a sidebar with a selection from Barry's memoir, Up Above the City, Down Beneath the Stars. Barry has auditioned for and now joined magazine. After a half gig, The Electric Circus, comprising three songs shot by both sides, The Light Pours Out of Me and Captain Beefheart's I Love You, You Big Dummy, and our first official gig at Rafters, where we performed nine, we now have a bigger gig at the Queen Elizabeth Hall Bellevue. The event hailed as Punk Comes to Bellevue runs over three days, organised and filmed for the TV show So It Goes by TV presenter Tony Wilson. My dad and my sister come to the show to see what you've been up to. During our performance, it's easy to spot them in the crowd. They're the only black people there. I hope they're okay, but I have to concentrate on freeing myself up, not dropping notes, performing like an old hand rather than a newcomer. We play motorcade, and the audience doesn't quite know what it's being hit with. Howard is all makeup and staring eyes which he uses to his advantage as he plays hide, seek and confront with them, jumping in and out of the shadows to deliver body blow after uppercut, after right cross. We have them. The clash of the headliners, supported by Susie and the Banshees. The night after we play, me, Willie Trotter and our mate Jimmy Ellis go to see the clash perform. After the show, clash guitarist Mick Jones comes over to me at the bar and asks if I'm Barry Adamson. Willie presses his elbow hard against mine to mark a what the fuck is this really happening moment? I say, yeah, Mick Jones, right? Great show. He goes on to tell me how great the bass playing is on the light pours out of me. Reminds him of Motown. Do you want a drink, I ask. Double whiskey and coke, he says watching me gulp the request down. Mick tells me there's an aftershow party and invites us all to it. Trotter and Ellis are beside themselves. I just act as though this is my life now, so we'd all better get used to it. At the same time, I'm thinking exactly the same way they are. It's Mick Jones from The Clash. He said my bass playing was great. He had me for a double whiskey cost me a fortune the scene was like it was, it was great because you walked around and kind of there was a lot of like recognition and nodding between people um and you didn't really distinguish yourself between 
you know, like, oh, well, I'm in this band and I'm doing this. You're just one of the many people that were there. And then you go, oh, you know, there's Ian from Joy Division. There's another Ian from Echo and the Bunnymen. felt like in this gang. You know, suddenly you were in this big gang and you could kind of hang out. You were suddenly visible, you know, to go from where we're talking about where things have come from. You're kind of visible now, you know. You don't make a big deal about the race thing at all in here. And, you know, you don't mention it in this conversation that much. And one of the things about punk was that that wasn't an issue so much, was it? There was a sort of honouring punk people honoured. People like, you know, Jamaican reggae musicians and knew that there was an important place in history that you can't ignore. That being a, a subcultural setup that played, you know, against what was going on, like politically and, and all the rest of it, that gave another sort of sense of belonging. But also there was kind of like, you know, you would see the rise of the National Front as well. You know, I think I describe in the book, like when the National Front came to one gig, and That's I thought, right. Yeah, and yeah. I thought, oh shit, this is right. me. You know, everyone took yeah. took two arms and kind of waded in there and got rid of them. I think there was more social situations, acceptance of similarity rather than like looking for the differences all the time, which is very much like the, the thing now, isn't it? I'm going to skip a bit because you know you got your time in magazine. You make these albums, make hit singles. You know, you're on tour. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, if it's all right with you, I wanted to go to another sort of patch of darkness, which is, which you talk about, which is, is heroin, right? And how that becomes one of the things, if you like, which kind of takes you down. I mean, mm. you talked about metaphor, which you use about, okay, you've had a lot of success and creatively and some commercial success, but then you also hit the, hit the brick wall yeah, and slid yeah, down, right? It. That was it. Talked a lot about drugs in these programs, but mainly in terms mm. of like psychedelia, you know, mm. and I've shied away from it, I realise, because there's always that fear of somehow glamorising it, you know, like inadvertently or whatever. But is it something that you can talk about now, that addict- mm. addiction period and yeah, actually yeah, how it talk- fed into yeah, what, can, what happened next? I can talk about it very easily, actually, now. So uh, what happened? The man with the golden arm. Exactly. It's all relevant. It all ties in. Yeah. You know, that's that's why that was called that. Yeah. yeah. The man with the golden arm, listener, by the way, was one of Barry's first, first solo, solo records. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Based on, Based the, on yeah. the Nelson Algren book mm. from the the Otto Preminger film where Frank Sinatra plays a heroin addicted drummer. Mm. And I was inspired because I saw myself in mm. the role, you know. Mm. So yeah, but heroin was a uh, it was um, a way to shut down the central nervous system. Hmm. And since a child, with whatever's gone on, things we haven't talked about, which we'll find out in the book, and this condition as well, the bone condition, something was able to stop the pain. You know, hmm. And it's a painkiller, you know, and a very addictive painkiller. So therefore, I thought I'd be um, spared <laughs> the idea of, like, you will become this addicted person who will sell their grandmother to get, you know, more. And which is like, I didn't do that, but of course I went down that path that went darker and darker, which I detail very much in the book. And in the book, I've got to say, it's some of my favorite passages uh, because I I felt, I felt it by that stage, it was safe to almost become slightly absurd because the notion of being on this, drug every day is is absurd and life-threatening so I wanted to bring those things into the book and very simply shuts down the central nervous system like nothing else 
and it was it was evident in the first operation that I had. The pre-med went in and everything stopped. Right. Every worry right. stopped. Right. Every fear, every kind of you know, idea that I was different stopped, you know, and all that stuff. And I think all of that time uh, using was spent trying to get that mm. back. Get back to that. Get back to that, yeah. yeah. Was there any pleasure? Well, it's difficult to say, really. I don't want to encourage people, you know, because if you have your central nervous system shut down, you're in a very sort of, you know, you're in the womb again. You know, and if that's pleasurable, that you don't feel pain or you don't feel anguish or you don't feel, you know, but that doesn't last very long at all. In fact, the first time that you realise that you need more heroin is that is that's it. You've kind of entered hell officially because you're now in that place where you know. And I mean, I had to go through all the things that any addict who's now recovering from addiction went through. You know, as I detail in the book. You know very blessed to be sort of almost 35 years away from that and I kind of see now it's it's quite a, it's just this this part of my life that I dedicated myself to um, but I, I'm not bigger than it that's that was the thing you see I thought I could master it and be okay and you know like like mastering playing the bass guitar with two strings you know all this mm, kind of stuff mm. the luck and the thing you know but oof, no they were the troubles right the troubles, the troubles. Yeah. we talk about it um, in terms of this desperate thing and you know at the same time your life is very exciting is that i mean in some respect you know you've, you've catapulted into this mm. su- successful band it's cool mm. doing all the stuff which many young men you know aspire to not yeah. footballers want to be rock stars and you're sort of there so yeah. it's, it's interesting that it came out at the same time isn't it in a way that, the self-destruction yeah you're actually you're getting what you could only dream of and, yeah. and then you've got to immediately sort of well, try and addic- get rid of it. addiction's known as, as as a sort of thing that's like baffling and powerful because you know at the same time that, that that's going on become its own voice and its own kind of guide you know it's like if you keep me sweet I'll keep you sweet you know, it's like you're almost in in sort of lead with this thing you know that, that's going on and uh, the only thing that, that I've heard so, you know thinks it can kill you and live on <laughs> so you're you kind <laughs> of go oh don't worry it's going to be fine you're in there so much and you're still kind of like having to deal with for me it might be you know stuff that happened uh, as a child but not really real not putting that together mm. I'm trying to like keep myself away from actually feeling that really feeling it on a deep level and grieving it. Here is another sidebar with another selection from Barry's memoir, Up Above the City, Down Beneath the Stars. Barry, now a member of the Bad Seeds, has come off tour to find that Caitlin, his partner, and his child have left. I decide I'll get clean. I can come off the gear at my mum's. I've done it before, that time I stayed at Rosebury Street with Will. I actually managed to stay clean for weeks. The laughter returned. We named the cats in the alleyway. Bird, Monk, Train, Miles and Dizzy. Because they were so fucking cool. We put on giant steps by John Coltrane. We'd get all of it. Every note. We'd follow Paul Chambers' bass lines as he walked all over town while Coltrane weaved in and out of his complex chord regressions. Eric Random and Lynn Walton who lived with us then, would kick and scream for each other's love. The dinner she made would slide down the wall and she'd go mad on the stairs, calling his name over and over. Me and Will would just be pissing ourselves passing a joint around before cracking up again. 
The sound filters away until all I can hear is a deafening silence and a clock ticking. I wonder if anyone's up yet. I've forgiven Pinkerton since that episode with the gas, the electricals and everything else. I did get on a train to London to buy a gun to kill her with, but bottled it when I realised what the fuck I was getting myself into. What about that hippie guy? Or the biker, what's he called? Or that guy in the crescents with the kid? I'd better get out and pick up some smack, as I don't want to get sick while I'm hanging out. But no, not again. No fucking way. My mum has suggested I come home and let go of the house, even though it's tiny. She said there's no point rattling around in there all day and all night. I could get clean, there this time. I feel energised now with some sense of purpose. The vulture is engrossed in a copy of the William S. Burroughs novel Junkie, while singing the magazine song, My Tulpa. I suspect you ain't so sweet as the last I'm concealing. My skin wants to crawl back home to Ma. I've lost my way in my feelings. You know what your problem is, says the vulture, as I roll my eyes. Ah, oh, not this again, I deflect, as though it might trip him up. Soft as shit you are. Always have been, always will be. Soft as fucking shit. He tosses the book aside. Soft in the head and soft in the belly, he spits. Even your bones are soft. I mean, they're mainly cartilage, right? I looked down at my legs. Caitlin was onto something when she told you to man up. I mean, look at you. A bloody gutless wonder. I grab my keys and wonder what Nick and the rest are doing. Maybe I should call Mick and find out. The tour's soon, I know. I can't wait to get back to the black moods, the bad moods the bad seeds. To get back to what you said though about you know all, all the success and the and you still sort of want trouble I think there's also a term that's used in a, in addiction of tragically hip and fatally cool. So you've got this thing going on I go well look at Miles. Look at Bird. Chet Baker. Look at Train. <laughs> look at yeah. you know and so you think oh yeah and maybe I could be like that you know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I could find this sort of place of expression within art. That, you know, so there's all that going on as well. Mm, the romantic sort of yeah, dream exactly, of it in yeah. some way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that anything good came of it? I recently interviewed Peter Coyote, the American actor, but he's also a big oh, yeah, figure yeah, yeah, in the yeah. counterculture. Yeah, yeah. And he was a heroin addict for about six, seven years in the mm-hmm. early 70s. Yeah. Um, and he'd gone from being this person who was like extreme, you know, social activist, very ideologically motivated, into counterculturally speaking. You know, he founded the Diggers, which were all about everything, making everything free and stuff. Mm-hmm. Ended up living in a commune, addicted to heroin for seven years. And he has this moment, parallel in some ways to your moment, um, mm. where he, he, he drops his daughter off, uh, her mum's, they're, mm. they're separated. He, he meets up with a friend, uh, goes to his apartment and they get high. Falls asleep at the table, like a table like this. Wakes up in the morning, his friend's dead, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, he's like, well, that could have been me. We took the same yeah, stuff. Yeah. How did that happen? If it had been me, my daughter would have been with a crazy mum or living yeah. in care. Right. So it was like, yeah, this is, that was his moment. Yeah. And you had, a, you, had a, you had your sort of in the lose moment, didn't you? And I, I came back out of a rehab and thought like, well, and I could tell coming back from that rehab, it wasn't gone. Mm. And I was terrified. I was like, why isn't it gone? It's not gone. I feel the walls closing in. 
I went to sleep like and didn't really sleep, kind of lay there with my eyes open and, and got up at sort of dawn and went to the supermarket for some tenants extra. I thought that will quell things. And of course it didn't, you know, and there was, there was a, a bunch of like homeless people there and they were like looking at me going, and one of them actually said, what's wrong with you? Mm. You know, and there I was in some sort of Prada shirt or something <laughs> like that thinking, what, what are you talking about? And as the day progressed, I went from bar to bar to bar and then bumped into this guy I knew and we went and sort of got some heroin, came back to the to where we were, which was Chelsea at World's End, where there was a public toilet. Went in the public toilet, boom. And I was just like, God, I've had too much, you know. And then this voice in my head just went, actually, you've not had enough. Hmm. You know, such is addiction. The guide, you know, mm. as I call it in the book, uh, the vulture. The vulture. The vulture mm. steps in. And so I do take some more, and that's it. I'm gone. And... Uh, the guy I'm with sees me dead, as opposed to Peter Coyote, you know, and runs off. Runs off because he doesn't want to be around a dead donkey. Exactly. So the guy who's, who's manning the place, um, like, looks around and uh, goes, oh, that's it then, and closes up, <gasps> goes mm. home. On the way home, looks for the time and realizes, oh, shit, he's left his watch. Mm. And it's the 22nd of December, so my hunch is that it's going to close for the whole of the Christmas period. So he goes back to get his watch and sees my foot sticking out of the stall and call, rings 999 and I go to the, the and they say to me like, well, you know, what's going on here, you know, and I just said, I told them about what was going on and said that I wanted to stop, you know, and that I would go to, you know, get some help. And as soon as I said that, everything shifted. I felt that I could tell there was a difference in that bombardment of slow fast backwards forwards voices that were very loud in my head and that gave me a kind of glimmer of mm. possibility you did it right? yeah and peter did it actually yeah. and it's interesting the reason i circled back to that was for him it was looking back on it that whole experience was essential not like there was lots he regretted about it mm. maybe the way he treated people and yeah. stuff there like that. that yeah but in the context of his life, he's 81, you know, he saw it as something which made him who he later became, right? Mm. And I was talking earlier about with you this evolution of luck and trouble. Yeah. And you also talked about how you used art, creativity. Yeah. I think you used this interesting phrase to massage trouble. Yeah, yeah. So you've had difficult, the darkness and stuff like that. And then music, making music mainly, but also, you know, you make film, you've written yeah. a book now, yeah, you've yeah. done other stuff. Yeah. There's been a w sort of way of massaging that. And then I think you use this very nice phrase about is that if it's good enough, then, then you can give it out as well. Yeah. So I yeah. just thought we could talk a bit about that. Is there anything positive that came out of the whole heroin experience? Well, I think it, it, there's part of that, you know, knowing, knowing who you are and knowing your limitations. Very sort of fixated about the human condition and mm. what the human condition withstands and goes through. It's funny, going back to signposts, there is a thing in the, in the book I, I talk about, like being a child and reading, getting these encyclopedias called The Book of Life. And there's a picture of what you'd call a, a heroin addict who sat sort of on this toilet doing the, the act. And I saw that and I kind of recognized myself. And I was only like nine. And I'm thinking, well, how did I recognize myself there? So, you know, I've had friends who kind of, got, you know, claim to be sort of, you know, very clairvoyant or and they go like yeah yeah you know don't worry things are going to happen to you very late in life 
very late in life. And I'm going, well, quite a lot's happened already. Go, no, 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 but you know what I'm talking about. And I go, yeah, I kind of do. Hmm. Would I change something? <sighs> Possibly. But for me, I don't know how necessary it was. Mind you, I'm not 81 yet, but I, I might have that one day. I might go, oh, my God. Without that, I, w- I wouldn't know about that. And I feel like in the last 30-odd years, what I've really learned that I never had a hold on in my whole life was compassion and empathy for others and and what they're going through. That's my outsider thing. It's almost like, like, you don't know how it is for me, you know, like, but now I know how it is for all of us. And I can still take a standing on art and I can still take a standing on what affects me and what I like and how I, what I love about it. That doesn't change, but it just feel like it, it, maybe it was needed to make me into the person I am now. I don't know. Yeah. We talked a bit about signals along the road, and I thought I've got to mention this because I've mentioned it before in one of these programs when I was interviewing Lloyd Johnson. Johnson and Johnson, the outfitters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I come to London, and I went in Johnson and Johnson, which is in Ken Market, and it was this place that sold those kind of, as, as Lloyd says, rock and roll wear for the street. You know, the sort of things that the bad seeds wore, these kind of, you know, Vegasy sort of stylish mm. stuff. Right? Mm. I couldn't afford it, and also I would have looked wrong in it, right? Anyway, but I'd like to think I could wear it. So I was in a changing room trying to a gold lame shirt, you know, and uh, this music started and I ended up being in there for about 15 minutes. And in fact, so long that the shop assistant came in and was like rattling the curtain. And I thought, I think he thought I was shooting up or maybe that I, you know, what's going on in there? Hey, lame lad, come on, what's going on? <laughs> Get out. <laughs> and what it was is that there was this music playing and I was listening to it and I came out and said, digging that music, what is it? And he said, it's this album called Oedipus Medipus by Barry Adamson. <laughs> I spent another sort of 20 minutes in the shop, you know, going All through right. the rails and stuff like listening to this record. That was a signal moment for me because I was making making music but mm. I didn't know how to make an album oh, right okay and because I'd make some tracks which sounded like they were 1930s jazz yep. tunes yeah I'd do something else which is a bit Eric Satie mm-hmm. and then I'd do something else which is a bit like a 60s pop tune or so fits to me <laughs> <laughs> and then that album it sort of set me free because it's sort of yeah you can go anywhere you can go anywhere punk gave you permission so so mm. listening to that album it sort of gave me permission to mm. make an album or, or give me the sort of Ability to imagine an mm, album. The context. Like, the context, yeah. yeah. And then my mate, uh, Glenn Duncan, had written this novel, I, Lucifer, so so I made this album, which was a soundtrack to a novel. Brilliant. You've done so many albums, uh, and we didn't really get a chance to talk about Moss Side Story, mm. which is an important part of this story, because yeah. it's... The phoenix out of the ashes. <laughs> phoenix out of the ashes, that's so Maybe <laughs> we can come back at some other time to... Tell us how the phoenix yeah. rose from the ashes and, and where it's off to next. But yeah. for now, Barry Adamson, Thank thanks you. very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you, Stephen. It was a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to have to leave it there, alas. Although there is a lot, lot more to say. I barely felt like we scratched the surface. I'll try to persuade Barry to return one day to hear more about how the phoenix rose from the ashes. Now, if you know Barry's work, you know he's a genius. If you don't, you're in for a big, dark treat. Oedipus Shmoedipus, the album, will always be special for me for obvious reasons, but there are so many great things to check out. You could start with Memento Mori, this anthology, 1978 to 2018, 30 years of music. Check out that at barryadamson.com. And of course, that wonderful memoir we've been talking about, Up Above the City, Down Below the Stars. Thanks, of course, to Barry. 
to Adrian, Esmeralda, Rachel and Soho Radio and to Shane for setting things up. And thanks to you for joining us and spending some of your countercultural time listening. Come back for more, bureauoflostculture.com. Let us know which countercultural characters you might like to hear about. Share your stories, inspirations and thoughts. Now, let's finish with some more Barry. This is the Big Bamboozle.